Hey, you're not going to bed yet, are you? That's right. It's time for TV Good, Sleep Bad. TV is awesome! Daniel Lackey and Elwood Jones. Uh, good evening, uh, everyone out there in Podosphere land. I am Daniel Lackey, broadcasting from the very top of TV Mountain in Chicago, Illinois, and you are listening to TV Good Sleep Bad, the podcast which does naughty things to cult television that you really shouldn't. We really should not be telling you about. Joining me, as always, from the very bowels of Great Britain, is uh, my co-host, Elwood Jones. How you doing, Elwood? I'm good, but I'm not sure how I'm going to follow that one up. <laughs> <laughs> you probably didn't even know Great Britain had bowels, did you? Well, there's many places that uh, could be described as the crud bucket of <laughs> Southwest or whatnot, so... Uh, yeah, it's uh, the way the things that the current political climate is going. Uh, you can pretty much take your pick of many places around here. So, well, we'll be joining you in that for in about two weeks. I think it'll be uh, it'll be hilarious. Yeah, when you uh, become the United States of smoldering hole. Yeah, basically. So, you know, right now uh, I'm just making a run on canned goods and bottled water. And, uh, you know, um, I'm planning on holding up here for a while. Uh, no, don't have any guns, though. Haven't been able to track any of those down. I was just about to say that whenever I see, like, Trump gain some momentum, I just think of that line in Gremlins 2 with the brain gremlins in the uh, stock market room. And he's like, I don't know about you, but we're kind of advising everyone to stock up on canned foods and shotguns about now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that really kind of... It is, you know, it really does feel like Gremlins too around here sometimes, you know. I, I, I really want to kind of get to the point where um, Donald Trump just says that he wants, you know, he, he wants the, you know, the essentials, you know, civilization and, uh, you know, guaranteed credit, even if he's been turned down before. And I'm pretty sure he's got like a little group of Gremlins behind him at his come in his command room at Election Central screaming, buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. Well, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> They've started comparing him to the uh, Triceratops boss of Dinosaurs now. Oh, dear. I don't know if you've seen the video. They've uh, done a side-by-side -side comparison, and it's scary, the amount of statements that Trump have made that matches up with the Triceratops boss. Wow. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that, no. We'll try and put put a little soundbite in there, in here on our. Uh, definitely send you. We'll send, put the link uh, down below so people can enjoy that one. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of like when we were comparing George Bush to uh, chimps. Oh wow! Side comparison is that sort of scarily accurate. So uh, yikes! Yeah, you know Charlie Brooker has been doing the rounds with the press because uh, you know Netflix dropped. Uh, three uh six new episodes of black mirror last week and one of the things he's being asked about now is uh you know the final episode of the second series the waldo moment he said yeah i initially i thought i went a little bit too far there and then trump came along he's playing pretty much entirely out of the waldo playbook that was just something where it's like yeah 
But have you seen any of the new series of Black Mirror? Um, I have watched the first four episodes. Okay, so you're ahead of me um, then. Yeah, I've watched the first four episodes. They're pretty good. Um, I think, like most people, I think it's the fourth one, the one with uh, Mackenzie right. Davis from Halt and Catch Fire. Um, she's in it, and Gugu Mbatha-Ra, I probably have mangled her name, who I'm sure has done things other than play Martha Jones's kid sister on Doctor Who, but to me, she's always going to be Martha Jones's kid sister, just basically because, you know, we had this discussion, I, you know, I had this discussion recently, and, you know, uh, you know, they're, so, you know, you, you know, they're doing the Iron Fist show, and they yeah. cast Finn, Finn Jones there, and, you know, the trivia question, we have this trivia question about who is playing Iron Fist, and what is he best known for, and I, I basically said, well, I know what answer you want, you want Finn Jones is best known for playing Loras Tyrell on Game of Thrones. Yeah. To me, he is always going to be Santiago Jones because of that one episode of Sarah Jane Adventures that had Katie Manning as Joe Grant and Finn Jones played her son Santiago. So he 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 appeared in an episode of Sarah Jane's alongside Elizabeth Slayton and Katie Manning and Matt Smith. He's stuck in that role forever. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the way it goes for me. But yeah, anyway, to go back about three TV shows, yeah, the third episode, I think the third or fourth episode of, of the new series of Black Mirror, San Junipero, I think it's called, that's a really good one. Uh, I, I'm pretty impressed with it so far. I don't know if there's anything there that really hits as hard as anything from the original runs, but there's really only, the problem with shock value is that you're, you can really only hit a shock so many times. Yeah. Um, and that's not necessarily something you want to do with every episode anyway. So, but it, it's pretty good so far. I'm not watching it so much for the short break, I think, about partway for the first episode of this new series. And I've only watched the first episode, so I can't really comment on anything else this season. Because it's kind of like a delicious meal. I want to take my time with it. I don't want to just gorge on it and, like, feel bloated and disgusted and wonder what i'm supposed to do next um, right i want to attempt turn my time with it and just and the stories are so enjoyable to watch one and then to go away and think about it so, so the first episode where everything's based on your actions people rate you because we are now obviously in this society where everything has to be rated uh -huh. um you can't do anything without having some sort of rating so i liked the idea that you're constantly trying to improve your rating because your rating is your status. Um, yeah. So, and that by having a high status, it allowed you certain privileges that, like, you're able to live in a better neighbourhood, you're able to have, like, first-class accommodation on flights and, and whatnot. And just watching these characters enter into this downward spiral was kind of like a, what Requiem for a Dream gives us. This pursuit yeah. of happiness and the inevitable downfall that comes with it. Yeah. Um... And I, it's I, kind of like the, it's, it's kind of like a requiem for a dream, except with meow meow beans. Yeah, I enjoyed what it was doing. I thought Bryce Dallas Howard was very good, and oh yeah, by being a Netflix supported series now rather than just through Channel Four, they obviously have the ability to bring in more named actors. Um, right. Certainly, we've had the news since we've since we recorded since it's launched that Jodie Foster is going to be directing an episode of the second batch. Uh, yeah, which is coming out next year, so that's exciting because Jodie Foster is 
one of those female directors, uh, much like Penelope Spears, who doesn't really get the credit she deserves. She's got a very good directorial eye, and while she's probably not known for her directing work and probably known more for her acting work, her directing body of work, I mean, like The Beaver, Little Man Tate, they're, they're all fantastic films. Um, uh-huh. So I'm really interested to see what she does with darker material. Um, right. And especially what sort of story she's going to be choosing to tell. Um, yeah. Because obviously with Black Mirror, we obviously, as long as it's based in technology, it's pretty much open range what you can do with it. And it's been interesting to obviously see from the trailer for this new series what sort of lies ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see that, oh, we're not just rehashing something we've done in the previous seasons, even though we've now got like double the episodes just for this block alone. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Excited to see what comes next. Um, the internet's been very good and not spoiled anything for me, which I'm very pleased about. Although I have a lot, had a lot of people say that they now can no longer use the internet because they've been traumatized by this show. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's you know, and it's it's still you know the problem, uh, and that's you know typically the problem with the internet. I mean, uh, I think I found out who died in the Walking Dead premiere within about. 12 hours of it actually happening not that i of it actually airing not that i actually watch the walking dead but okay it's like yeah yeah okay you can calm down people but yeah people have been very good they doesn't seem to have the fan base that the kind of fan base that the walking dead or game of thrones has where they've got to go on the internet and it's oh my god did you see what character died now so i i, I don't know what to attribute that to I mean, obviously, Walking Dead, it, it's back. Um, over here, Ofcom received a whopping seven complaints um, for the for the violent uh, opening, which a lot of people have been saying they're shocked and they're disgusted and that they're not going to watch the show anymore. And I'm thinking this has been one of the most talked about scenes since the end of... Well, coming up to the, the end of the previous season. So uh-huh. there's been numerous screen cracks screenshots of the source material yeah and there's been all this confirmation is going to be this as gruesome as it is in the comic and people were shocked with what they got um i like the fact that they changed it slightly from the source material um, yeah which was great because they sort of set it up that you thought you knew who was going to get killed and then obviously someone else got bumped off before we had it going back to the source material, so I thought that was a nice, a nice uh, switcheroo there, and yeah, and that was I haven't read the comic either, but I, I remember when this scene happened in the comics, and it there were fewer, there was fewer in on my Facebook feed when this happened in the comics. Yeah, um, so I, I remembered that, and I said, "There's no way that the showrunners, the Walking Dead showrunners, are going to adapt this straight." They're going to kill that character at some point in some way, <clears throat> but it, it's not going to be, they're not going to just do it straight off the comics because yeah. everybody, you know, it's not necessarily everybody knows, but it's still, you know, something where you can go. It's not something you really want to go to. Well, it's surprising. I mean, with something I've seen come out of the whole controversy surrounding this, this, this opening is that I'm now seeing that there's been this divide in the horror community, especially within genre critics that have come out and said that they don't really view The Walking Dead and Scream Queens and American Horror Story 
as being the sort of horror that interests them because it's mainstream horror. And they rather right. focus their interest on like the independent scene or looking at old genre cinema from like the golden period for horror, sort of like 70s, 80s. Right. Um, and focus their attention there than this modern horror because it it just feels too mainstream for them. Right. Um, and I can understand what they're, they're obviously saying when you see like, when you have people talk about The Walking Dead and stuff and they don't cite any of the history, they don't have any of the sort of knowledge. And I know it's something we've discussed on previous episodes of this show, the fact that you have people who say, oh, I love Walking Dead, but they don't know anything about Fellucci, they don't know about Romero, they don't acknowledge the history of the genre. They right. just base all their knowledge on what happens on The Walking Dead. And uh, right. it's kind of depressing. I mean, you, when you see people like Ryan Murphy basically running the genre into the ground and making it seem so horribly tacky and cliche. Um, I watched about five seconds of Screen Queens that was on the other, other night, and I was like, this is just garbage. Yeah, this is being passed off as high horror. Uh, right. Much like he's trying to do with American Horror Story, which is fast becoming just an excuse just to show graphic violence and sex on uh, on a mainstream channel. It's not mm-hmm. clever writing. There's nothing particularly interesting. We're just recycling cast members and giving us this uh, these awkward cycles where the audience is losing interest around the halfway point because Ryan Murphy can't tell a story. Right. And that's, uh, I mean, that's part of why I, I, I gave up on um, uh, American Horror Story after the third season. Yeah. You know, it, it's just, he's, he's incapable. He's very good. Ryan Murphy is very good at taking like an emotional set piece and putting it in a, in a certain context. He's not very good at telling a story. And just about every single season uh, that I've watched of the first three seasons, and I have no, no reason to believe that he's improved on this. Um, he, every single season of, of the, the first three seasons of American Horror Story just basically falls to bits yeah. at the end because he's not telling a story. He's eliciting reactions to what he does. You know, he's he's shocking, trying to shock the audiences with, you know, violence and, oh, you know, titillation and shock twists. And ultimately, he's selling a lot of steak and not, he's selling a lot of sizzle and not a lot of steak. Yeah. But on the other hand, there are people who have stuck with, you know, they, they've stuck with, um, you know, American Horror Story. So I, I guess good for them if they're getting what they need to get out of it. it. It's just not holding my interest. Unlike Westworld, Westworld is beyond anything that anyone expected. I think this is my new obsession. Um, yeah, um, that has been the reaction. It's an HBO show. I don't have HBO, so I have not seen it yet. Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to start ruining Westworld for you, mainly because we're too early in it to be making assumptions and, and whatnot. But from the basis of a fan of the original material and comparing it to the series, um, it's been fantastic the fact that they took the the framework of what Westworld is and expanded it the way that they now have the freedom to within the confines of a series. And it's been great, obviously going into it, expecting certain characters to be represented of characters from the film and then having that expectation shattered. Um, uh-huh. There's a lot of great ideas floating around in it already. There's been some fantastic set pieces. 
the use of modern music, given an old-timey twist, has been pretty inspired. Um, and all the characters at the moment have been... They all seem to be serving a purpose. There's no character who is there to provide just basically filler. And, I mean, Anthony Hopkins in particular is is probably one of my favourite characters on the show. And just his whole storyline as the architect of the park is proving to be fascinating to watch as he's playing at times like a like the doddery old man, like the John Hammond character. And then mm-hmm. other times he'll twist it and like be the one who's clearly in full control of the situation. Uh, right. Despite the money men behind the park trying to wrestle that control away from him. So yeah, Westworld at the moment, I can't recommend it enough. I'm really enjoying it. It's uh, it's actually what I opted to watch over the Walking Dead um, opening. So, uh, oh, there you go. But uh, yeah, I mean, here in the UK, we didn't really have that sort of issue because uh, they have Walking Dead on Mondays and then Westworld's on Tuesdays. So... They uh, kind of do want to pit those two together against each other. And uh, in a more random note, I did meet Anthony Hopkins recently because he's uh, filming the new Transformers down here in Gosport. Oh! Yeah, they're up at the uh, military base and uh, we hung outside with a bunch of other Transformers fans and watched the catering van and uh, he came out and said hello and that that, that was about it. He, was, he <laughs> seemed like a nice guy. There's no deeper context this way and if i know if westworld has started at this point i probably would have bugged him for some insider information but uh no yeah i think the only thing that disappointed me went that he it wasn't like charlton Hestine on friends where he was like eating a, eating a licorice whip or something and i could have been <laughs> like oh anthony hopkins eating a licorice whip <laughs> who knew eating but, uh, a licorice whip with anthony hopkins <laughs> that, that, that would have been it but no uh he came out and uh he said hello to everyone, really, really nice, and uh, posted for photos with people. And I mean, what do you say? I mean, the man's a living legend. He's yeah. It's like it's like you played Hannibal Lecter, and he'd be like, "Well, tell me something I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, Westworld. If you when you do get a chance to watch it, definitely do. I know, obviously, yeah, it's on HBO over there, so you don't. You have to pay people for that. I have to pay. I have to pay extra. Now there's a. I don't. I don't know exactly how I'm going to to work all this. Um, I haven't decided yet. Uh, because there's a couple of other shows, obviously, that are uh, that I'm following. So I don't know if I want to wait until um next year. I I don't know if I want to pick it up like a season. See if I can get like a season pass. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to Amazon, I, I'm sure it doesn't have it's on a season, uh, uh, a season pass now. But at this point, I've actually got other than Game of Thrones, a couple of HBO shows I'm I'm watching. I'm uh, obviously, uh, as we discussed last episode, you got me hooked on uh, Silicon Valley. So I may at some point just get like uh, towards the end of the year, get a uh, um, sign on to like HBO Go or HBO Now for a month. Yeah. And binge, um, binge Westworld and Silicon Valley. Um, and then let that lapse and then maybe do it again at some point. Uh, anything else on your screen? I've really entered into this bizarre anime kick. Um, all of a sudden, I've, I think it's because we were watching a Weirdo 808 and it, it uh-huh. revitalized that need to watch anime. So, um, I've, on Crunchyroll, I've been watching. I've watched about the first four episodes of "Is It Okay to Pick Up Girls in a Dungeon," 
um, which is like this fun fantasy, uh, which is, I believe it's only about 20 episodes long. I tend to aim for the ones which are, are quite short. So I've been watching that and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, interesting seeing this Dungeon Dragon style story. But at right. the same time, you have characters that when they kill monsters and stuff, they level up. So it's like, like they're playing Dungeons and Dragons for reals. So they have like stat points and things like that. Um, oh, at boy. the same time, they have goddesses that and gods that like that they can belong to. Uh, they have as like fam- familiars, and who uh, who choose to support to support their like chosen champions. So. I'm a little early into it to really sort of uh, fully understand everything that's going on, but I'm enjoying it. It's lighthearted. It's fun. Um, because I'm finding that modern anime, the fan service is so unbelievably heavy. I actually dug up some old school anime and I thought, oh, I watched Fist of the North Star. You know, I remember enjoying that. And um, so I started that. And it's when I started, I realized there's 150 episodes of this show. Yeah, that's what keeps me away from getting into a lot of anime. It's like, I don't know if I want to make a 100-episode commitment at this point. Yeah. So, uh, of 150 episodes, I'm currently 19 episodes in. Okay. <laughs> and so, this one's going to be going on a while. Um, but, uh, yeah, Fist of North Star, it's, for those not familiar, it's basically like an ultra-violent version of uh, Kung Fu the David Carradine series, um, which was originally de- going to be called The Warrior. It was developed by Bruce Lee, but uh, the studio essentially stole his idea and gave it to David Carradine. And um, you basically follow this uh, guy named Ken, who's like this super-duper martial artist who has this, the Fist of the North Star style, and he's tracking down his arch-rival who uses the South Star style. Um, basically, everyone he comes into contact with he uses like kiss the dragon style precision to hit certain points and use like chi um, and causes them usually to explode in bloody explosions. So it's kind of like a uh, story of Ricky O in many ways. Okay. Um, it's one I think I'm going to do on a future episode. I'm going to pick out an episode to watch just to see what you make of it. Because um, it is, it is daft. And if you watch too many together, they can seem kind of samey. But, uh, you know, with my morning coffee, it's kind of fun to watch. That, I believe, it is it. I mean, I've been, we've just recently got Vice, um, the magazine Vice. They've launched their channel over here, Viceland. So right. I'm finding myself watching a lot of, like, the Vice documentaries. Uh-huh. Um, and I only recently found out how much Vice is worth. I mean, do you want to just take a fun guess on how much Vice is worth. I could make a guess that they're probably worth more than I would initially suspect. Yeah, that's, I um, thought they weren't worth much, but uh, I was wrong. <laughs> I I would put them probably in seven figures. Okay. Uh, that could be wildly... I have the feeling from the tone of your voice that that's a bit off. I, I but mean, how much are they worth? They're worth $1.4 billion. Wow. And this is the guys that that write about doing drugs um, and using sperm as a youth regenerating cream. And but if you read their books, they were saying in the early days they basically just made everything up. Right. And they obviously evolved into this powerhouse alternate news outlet. Um, right. And with Viceland being the latest sort of wing of this media low empire that they said, but. No, um, I mean, 21st Century Fox have 
a sh- have a own a percentage. Disney, more surprisingly, own a percentage of the company as well. But uh, yeah, they're uh, currently priced at about one point four billion. Wow, that makes yeah. Sense. I would. I I knew that they were getting up there because I think they I think they've even get to, gotten to the point where, if I recall correctly, I know that they've even been in like like narrative film production deals. I yeah. think they had a hand in um. I, I think they actually did have a hand in like uh, not the new Thai, the mo- second most recent Thai West movie, The Sacrament. Um, yeah, you know, so it's just yeah, I, I, I have been tracking them for a while, um, and th- this does seem like they've uh, <clears throat> the stock has risen uh, quite high, really out of nowhere. Well, I mean. I mean, despite the fact from the company's worth, I mean, it makes the CEO, uh, Shane Smith, he's worth about $400 million. Uh-huh. And uh, when we talk about these, these big money, money players, we never seem to mention this guy who owns what can easily be dismissed as being a trashy, sort of poopy magazine to be worth that right. much. Um, but then again, you look at the editor of Viz and uh, that he was well up there in the millions as well. So uh, yeah, there's money. To, there's money still to be made in trash. But uh, no, yep. the channel Viceland is. There's been some fantastic documentaries on there about uh, like the suicide forest in Japan. Um, yeah. They they had um, Ellen Page has done a great series called Gaycation, uh, where she travels to different places and and discusses about gay rights. Uh-huh. Um, the Eddie Huang has been doing a, a cookery show called Huang's World, uh, which was great because he went to um, Gary Bruce's son's little hangout, the Sausage Palace, and um, basically tore them a new one. He said, you know, you guys are just being fake. You know, you just want to take account of what you're doing. And he just like, and he looked, Gary Bruce's son, whose name I can't remember now. And I feel so uh, Is it Jake? It. Jake. Would this be Jake Busey? Yeah. He just looks so sad. <laughs> he's just like he's there and he's like got like the fat guy and uh and like got these like women and the like there's all these like drugs and goodness what else carrying on there they're doing the usual debauchery thing you've probably seen if you've looked at anything any sort of like the fashion sort of uh mags and stuff because they're constantly featured in there and mm-hmm. uh, he just looks so sad when he got put in his place <laughs> But uh, yeah, Eddie Hong, or the human panda, as he likes to call himself, uh-huh. um, it's, it's a fascinating show. It, uh, it's kind of similar to Man Vs. Food. It's that enthusiasm for food that that I like to see with my cooking shows. So. Uh-huh. But uh, is there anything else for yourself at all? Or? Um, well, uh, we've uh, been getting the beginning of the new television season here in America. So I've been, you know, uh, checking a few things out here and there. Uh, checked out Timeless. Uh, and um, which is a time travel show. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the co-stars on it, one of the regular co-stars, is Patterson Joseph from your side of the pond. Um, yeah, we seem to be losing everyone to your to your side of the pond itself. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, Patterson Joseph. Who there was a period of time when I was going through like British shows, and Patterson Joseph was like in everything. Okay. Um, I remember him initially from uh, the, the Neverwhere uh, from back in the 90s, uh, where he 
starred alongside a bunch of people who are now um, more famous than they were at the time. People like Peter Capaldi and uh, Laura Fraser. Yeah. And um, that was where I first noticed him. And then, like I said, there was a period of time like the late 2000s, early 2010s, where he did a show called Boy Meets Girl. He was a supporting player on that, which was a miniseries um, about a body swap between Martin Freeman and I think Rachel Rachel Griffiths or Rachel Sterling. I can never I, I can never remember them properly. Okay. And then uh, from there they did the Survivors revival. He was on that. He played Greg. Um. And then didn't hear much from him for a while. He did Jekyll, um, obviously, with uh, James Nesbitt. And didn't hear from him a while. And then he popped up on The Leftovers on HBO um, with uh, uh, just about everybody in the universe was in on that one. Everybody from uh, Justin Thoreau to Liv Tyler to Christopher Eccleston was in uh, The Leftovers. Uh, so now he's moved to this, and, and um, Timeless is, it's interesting so far, but it hasn't really given me its killer episode yet, the one that's going to keep me watching uh, beyond the first season. Uh, the same thing applies to the new, <coughs> pardon me, uh, Kiefer Sutherland show, Designated Survivor. That's pretty interesting so far, but I don't know if it's really, really hooked me. I have been trying to watch... Uh, and I've, I've been having problems all week at my apartment. I switched internet providers, and then they were doing renovations on the apartment next to me, and then they said they had to do uh, renovations on my apartment. So I have not gotten the pilot episode of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency watched yet. That's uh, based on the Douglas Adams novel, obviously, with uh, apparently Max Landis as showrunner. I don't recognize the name of the guy that plays Dirk, but uh, the main actor in the show, the main famous guy in the cast, is Elijah Wood. It, it's a series that's we've not had any sort of announcement of it coming over here yet, and it's uh, it's a little frustrating because obviously Elijah Wood is like in my top actor category of people. I'm just very excited about his career path at the moment, uh -huh. um, and everything I see him in, such as like Grand Piano or the remake of Maniac, um, just makes me all the more keen to see what he does next and. Yeah, he's, he's currently going back and forth between doing TV and films because obviously he was doing Wilfred, Wilfred as well, right? The uh, American version of Wilfred. Yeah, um, so I'm kind of interested to see what he does with uh, Dirk Gently, definitely. Yeah, and I, I'm a Doug, I'm a Douglas Adams super fan, so um, I was a little bit skeptical because I'm not entirely sure about Max Landis. But uh, I, I haven't finished the pilot episode yet, so that's the the, the verdict's still out on that one. Uh, the main thing that I've taken up at this point is uh, I think it was earlier this week, or maybe it was last late last week. They uh, Showtime uh, released a teaser for the Twin Peaks revival. Okay, um, with a lot of I'm not really showing a whole lot of anything revelatory. Um, or even I don't even think any any interviews with like Mark Frost or David Lynch, but basically just a lot of interviews with a lot of the cast members, um, you know, both from the original show and the the the, the continuation. So they're you know 
Kyle McLaughlin, uh, Dana Ashbrook, uh, James Marshall, and then some of the new members of the cast, like Jim Belushi, um, talking about it. Um, and that kind of stoked a lot of that stoked a lot of um, uh, interest in that. So I have never actually seen the full run of Twin Peaks. So I finally started that on Netflix. It's a little bit, it, it's, it's really interesting because it, it, it obviously being kind of like what it is and coming from the air, it is there's a certain amount of adjustment that you kind of have to do. Uh, so it, it, it moves a lot slower than I remember shows from the time moving. And yeah. it, it, it's got this really weird tone to it where it'll, it'll, it'll get dark and it'll be dark, and just in the middle of the pilot episode, they'll throw the scene where uh, Cheryl and Fenn freaks out the Norwegian investors. <laughs> you got this scene with this woman saying, the Norwegians are leaving! The Norwegians are leaving! You know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's very David Lynch. Um, thing, it's it's interesting. Yeah. The thing, between, the thing with it is that you have to... <sighs> Like any David Lynch film, you have to basically focus on the key points and ignore the creative fluff that's happening around it. Uh-huh. Um, this it is so hard to like to talk about the show without spoiling what lies ahead. Um, right, but no, it's a lot of the rules are there, such as uh, for David Lynch films, such as if you see a red light, it means something important is going to be said, so it's going to be a key thing. Same as if it's, you know, like, it's like a red room or red light, it symbolizes something important is going to happen. So, yeah, I like it. I, I, It's just one of those shows that I just, I just really like. And I think it, once you get it, and it may require like a second viewing, and certainly the first season is better than the, the second. Uh-huh. Um, there's just so many little moments I like, I like throughout it. Um, such as when he's giving his little sermons on giving yourself a present every day. Yeah. Um, the, the, those little monologues that, uh, that Agent Dell uh, just, just gives. I just I just really, uh, I just like them. And some of the characters I don't think have aged well with the series. Um, yeah. And some of it goes a little too off the wall to, uh, the, it's to the detriment of the series. But um, yeah, it's, I, I understand why it's it's appeals lasted so long, and I'm 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 excited for the uh, the return and hopefully having uh-huh. a conclusion uh, to it all. Really, that's why I need yeah. just one good conclusion. I don't need multiple seasons. I just need one good conclusion so we can put it to bed. Right. But uh, yeah, but uh, that's what I've been up to. Um, but yeah, that's the uh, same for myself. I mean, the only thing that we haven't mentioned already is, uh, uh, Jack and Ozzy's Road Trip, which is kind of shown on History Channel. It's a history show with, uh, Jack and Ozzy Osbourne. Oh, great. Um, Ozzy Osbourne, <laughs> it, this is the thing that gets me. It turns out Ozzy Osbourne is a serious history nut. It's, and, it's uh, not something you would, I... I guess I shouldn't be surprised about. I mean, just inter- just a little, weird, interesting things about rock stars. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily know. Like Phil Collins is a another history buff and has actually written about a book about the Alamo, um, or all the various members of uh, the various LA punk and San Francisco punk rock scenes who also have like doctorate degrees in science. 
<laughs> like Dexter Holland has Dexter Holland, I think, is a microbiologist. Yeah, he's and, a, uh, he's an actual doctor. Yeah, um, which blows my mind when you think of uh, think of the offspring, the bratty skater punks that they are. Uh huh. <laughs> to actually um, have the fact that he's also a uh, he's he's like a very switched on uh, on guy. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, and my uncle, who is a punk rocker, um, and I actually thought of you, he he posted a picture. It's like, I got to see my favorite band recently. And pick, you know, pick points a picture of this gray-haired guy, and I'm like, I'm not really up to date on my punk rockers. Is that <laughs> like the guy from, uh, I thought it was the guy from Social Distortion, but it was the guy from The Descendants. I'm like, oh, I know somebody who likes The Descendants. <laughs> and uh, I guess there's like a couple of other people like it, kind of like the SoCal or MidCal that also have like advanced degrees in the sciences. And my uncle is, a again, a punk rock guy who's also a microbiologist. And... Uh, he has that kind of connection to them, which is just really interesting. Yeah, I think it was the lead singer of the Vandals uh, on their website was offering free legal advice. Uh huh. So I don't know if he's actually passed the bar or not, but saying the legal advice was there. That I don't, and again, I'm not sure if they're still offering it there. But last time I checked on the site, uh, they had the option there, so you could get free legal advice. Yeah, the um, David Lowry. Uh, the lead singer of Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker, I know he teaches law. He teaches copyright law, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Well, um, what's it? I mean, the other one that uh, surprised me as well is that um, Skull, a bulk and skull on the Power Rangers, he's uh -huh. actually a professor of, uh, professor of acting. Oh. So, uh, yeah, he's actually another doctor. Um, another, I'm not sure if he's a doctor or not, but I know he's a professor. Uh -huh. Um, so, uh, yeah, who'd have thought that, uh, the guy who played Skull on, uh, Power Rangers is, uh, is a qualified acting teacher as well. Yep. But, More um, you know. Yeah, the series itself, it's basically, uh, Jack and Ozzy, they're going off visiting various historical sites of, uh, interest in this, this road trip, because they're both sober now. Uh, uh -huh. and they've been saying for years that they're going to do this road trip, so they go around and they visit like Mount Rushmore and they went to Iron Mountain which is the big data storage facility yep um and the they they found like the original recordings uh that that he did for like crazy train <laughs> where there's Sony have stored in there and he's like like these like the un um unengineered recordings and stuff so it's been right. really fascinating mixes. and to obviously find out as you said that Phil Collins is like this leading authority on the Alamo. Yeah. Um, so, and the fact he's friends with uh, Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. As he, uh, as Ozzy points out, he's like, Phil Collins, he's a really nice guy. He is. <laughs> so, is it, you know, it's, it's funny and informative at the same time. And uh, I'm enjoying it. That's cool. And uh, also I found out in the episode I just watched that Ozzy is also friends with Dolly Parton. As that a, makes sense. That that makes a, a certain kind of sense. <laughs> she uh she video chatted him to wish him happy birthday, which I thought was nice of her. So uh yeah, again, two people I would never put together, same as Eminem and uh, Elton John being best friends. Yeah. So uh because uh, he was uh he was Eminem's sober companion when he got out. He got out. Uh huh. So uh, so, uh 
But uh, yeah, I mean, if that's uh, if that's it for obviously what we've been watching, it's been a pretty full schedule by uh, yeah there. But uh, okay, on to our first uh, selection for this evening. We're going to start with my pick for this episode, which is an episode from season three of the British comedy uh, Bottom. This is a spiritual sequel in many ways to The Young Ones, as it stars Adrian Emerson and Rick Mill teaming up once more to play these two crude perverts who basically live in a, in a flat and view themselves... They're basically unemployed survivors, as Rick Mill describes their characters. And the whole series, all they do is come up with schemes to get sex or money while constantly engaging in these like violent slapsticky situations as they can take pretty much any situation and escalate it to the most ludicrous of situations to episode we're obviously looking at tonight this is the halloween episode it's called terror and in it uh eddie and richie over the course of the episode they go trick-or-treating with cattle prod they try to throw a party in order to try and get laid and it goes horribly wrong and in failing to get laid decide that they're going to sell themselves to the devil um while also engaging in some consuming some very questionable sprouts this for myself is one of my favorite episodes of the series and the series itself was the show that my mother hated which probably meant that it's the reason that my myself and my brother loved it as much as we did um this the show this show in particular this episode is just so funny and violent and really full on slapstick and I mean this is the most anarchic of British comedy of this particular era uh, this obviously being in the early nineties and the British comedy scene itself was viewed as being extremely punk as it had sort of come out the late eighties so we had some of the cream of British comedy talent we had French and Saunders. We had uh, people like Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie um, all doing exciting projects. And obviously with Ed, Adrian Emerson and Rick Mel, uh, they were really the ones right there on the fringe and they remained throughout the, on the fringe throughout the whole of this uh, sort of period as they went from doing this the show. They attempted to turn it into a film with Guesthouse Paradiso, with, which was horrible, and eventually just sort of ran its course as a series of stage shows. But like him, and this was your first experience with Bottom, am I right in saying? Uh, yes, it, it was. Um, now, I remember, I, I've been aware of, as you say, the whole punk co- British punk comedy scene. Um, I've been aware of that, been aware of that for, for quite some time. MTV in the United States, once MTV started to kind of move away from like all music videos all the time, one of the things that it, it, it had imported uh, was the young ones? So they ran the young ones, and some of the 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 comic strip, uh, the longer form episodes as well. So that was my first kind of uh, uh, exposure to a lot of a lot of these individuals. Um, at about that same time, a uh, local PBS station started running. It had acquired Blackadder, uh, and, and that was the, again the same kind of group of um, comedians, you know. Um, obviously not just uh, Edmonton and Mail, but also like Chris Ryan, Alexi Sale, uh, Jennifer Saunders, Don French, Brian Laurie, Griff Reese Jones, Mel Smith, and so forth. And uh, but I, 
I think actually probably I, I want to say that I mu- that they must have been running MTV must have been running the com not if not the comic strip then at least the young ones by 1985 or 1986 because I was aware of Alexi's sale by the time he did an episode of he did a Doctor Who serial uh, revelation of the Daleks and I remember being excited that he was on there so I must have known about him by that point and we ran our PBS station got it really that season Doctor Who right after it aired in Britain so I, I must have been aware of it by about like 85 or 86 but it was really like a lot of this stuff that, that they would show I remember in particular um, I, I remember um, them running a, uh, a comic strip uh, episode a long form episode I don't know if it was really a television movie uh, that was a parody of the four I think the episode was called Forgo Madden Dorset. I know it was a parody of like the fabulous four. I, I don't remember exactly what it's called, but like these, these, you know, two boys, two girls, very much like a British sort of stuffy British children's lit type thing where they go on adventures and have a dog. Yeah. Um, that type of thing. And, and, you know, uh, I, I was very aware of that kind of stuff and, and was really, you know, kind of familiar with that very kind of anarchistic, very punk rock attitude towards comedy. Um, and I always paid attention to like, I, I learned a lot of those names early on. I always paid attention if I watched something to, to look out for those names. Um, in retrospect, it is really, really odd that somehow I have never seen uh, Drop Dead Fred, which was Rick Miles' real attempt to kind of uh, break into the American film scene. It has a bit of, it, 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 it flopped, if I recall correctly. Uh, I, that was the film, I believe, where he played Phoebe Cates' imaginary friend. But it's gained something of like a cult reputation, at least over here. Um, and then also, like, still being clued in enough to, you know, recognize, um, you know, when Rick Mayall would show up. And I keep pronouncing his name different ways. Uh, so I apologize for that. But when he would show up, like, he had, he was one of the ghosts in the Harry Potter movies. But no, Bottom is one of those. And incidentally, when it comes to Guesthouse Paradiso, Jay Cluett tells me I absolutely have to see it. So... Okay. Um, uh, two Brits enter, one Brit leaves. That's the way I look <laughs> at it. But no, this so this was my and I had basically heard about about uh, the the kind of the follow up show, the show that kind of exists in between um, the young ones and bottom. A show called Filthy Rich and Cap Flat, which they had done, I think, with Nigel Planer, uh, yeah. Neil the Hippie, um, and that which Ben Elton had 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 also written and. Um, and then moving on to bottom, which is bottom. I had just basically heard was that bottom was about when it came down to like pushing the limits with what you can do on a television show. Bottom was really kind of the, the absolute limit of what people could handle. And um, I, so I kind of knew it by reputation. I knew it was going to be crude. I knew it was going to be anarchistic. I knew that it was going to be insane. Um, Amazon is selling these to the prime uh, to the to the uh, to the prime. They're selling the streaming packages, season passes for five bucks a season. So I just bought the entire third season. Okay. It's like five bucks. So um, now Terror is the second episode. So I just started watching from the beginning of the season. Uh, so I watched the first episode of that series, season first, which was the. Uh, that's um, the two characters. And I, I don't think you mentioned their full names. Um, so I just really want to say this right out here because this is just to me 
really sets you up for what uh, you're, you're in for here. Uh, Rick Mayall's character is named Richard Richard. I guess he's Richard Twat in the film. Um, but he's Richard Richard here. And Adrian Edmonton's character's name is Edward Elizabeth Hitler. So this is this is right up front. This is the sort of thing you know you're going to have to deal with, and I was not disappointed. I, I have to say, just limiting myself to the terror episode, it, it, it's just these are people who basically, and this was the great thing about you put these two in particular together um, as a team, Mail and Edmonton. They these are people who had no shame. They would do anything for a laugh. And they would basically dig right down into their into their basis, your basest instincts to, to make you laugh. And there's just a point where they're coming up with these bizarre Halloween costumes and, and Mayall's costume. I guess he's trying to dress as the devil. And his his costume is he standard like shirt and tie, no trousers. He has his shirt tucked into his briefs. Uh, we call them tidy whities or yeah. briefs over here in America. I think you call them Y fronts in Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, and a pair of a pair of red fishnet tights. <laughs> it's um, yeah, and, it's pretty tragic. His his and, outfit. And um, Adrian Edmonton is dressed up as a, a Halloween banana. Why? Because they were out of pumpkins. And they have an electric cattle prod. Now I don't exactly know why these two fellows need to possess an electric paddle prod and they do and it's not something that really has been engineered very well or built very well and you really the, the thing is uh, for bottom for a, sh a show called bottom uh a british show called bottom you're you're going to get a lot of toilet humor and uh, when anybody ever tries to actually activate and when I say ever anyone, I mean the Rick Mayall character here, uh, activate the electric cattle product gives him such a shock that he simultaneously uh, farts and lets forth a gout of diarrhea, apparently, and he keeps ruining his tights. So, yeah. But, I mean, there's just some, it is just, this is basically a show, like I said, it'll it'll just go for your basis instincts. And this is, it's a show that makes me feel kind of guilty at just, laughing at just such basically stupid stuff but it's it, i say that it's stupid but it's you know you're dealing you know that to an extent that there is kind of like a level of satire here it's it's not entirely you know just people doing dumb shit for uh a quick a cheap laugh there's it, it, this is really very calculated oh yeah um, it's it's very anarchic humor uh, the fact that, and it's on so many levels, which I think a lot of people dismissed it, and on, maybe because it is so filthy and and juvenile in its humor at times. As you mentioned already, the first episode of this particular season, the whole episode is there, those two in a Ferris wheel, in which they're trapped at the top, and the Ferris wheel is scheduled to be demolished the next day. Yeah, so they can't go anywhere, and. They spend 30 minutes going back and forth trying to figure out how to escape this Ferris wheel. They have various props that they bring into it. And again, with Terror, this is one of the few episodes where they use multiple locations. Because obviously we have a large percentage is set in, in the grotty flat. Mm -hmm. um, and we also see them going trick-or-treating. As you mentioned already, Eddie is dressed as a banana. And to make it sound scary, he just goes, Whoo! Yeah. Um, 
And they, we also have this like trio of young kids dressed as devils who, I think in the opening five minutes, managed to impel in, um, a pitchfork in Eddie's crotch. Yeah. Um, and the, the pair encounter these devils like later on and embark on like, one of the most ludicrous fight scenes that takes place behind the walls. So you don't actually see what's going on, but you hear all the noise. Yeah. And you've got various things popping over the top of the wall. And Eddie, like, pops over the wall, <laughs> like, partway through the fight. And addresses the audience, goes, I think it's going rather well. And then it gets dragged back. And you see, like, an axe appear at one point and swing down. Like, uh-huh. a random paper cut out. A sheep gets thrown up in the air. And it's sort of <laughs> like, there's no reason for any of this. And yet it's so incredibly funny and you're just going along with it. That's the genius yeah. of it. That, And all the time when they're, they're doing the back and forth and they're using like innuendo and, and just playing around with like English language. I mean, it's uh-huh. at the time it's like very playground humor. So it's just like, oh, can I drink your juice or um, can I have your sausage? And these sort of euphemisms for, yeah. for, for sex acts and whatnot, which of yeah. course appeals to you when you're in school and it's, it was refreshing to see that now as an adult and supposedly old and wise the fact that I'm apparently still as juvenile in my humor as I was back then. Yeah. And um, I mean, there are just so many classic bits in here that I just, I remember at one point, I think it was the, um, you know, they had been, you know, Richard had, atta- had you know, test Eddie with making some fireworks and doing something with carrots. And, uh, he, you know, he, he, he produces a carrot that's had a little smile drawn on it. And I just lost it. I absolutely, I don't know what the hell it was. He said, little carrot with a little tiny smile drawn on it in felt tip. And I just lost it. Completely, and then it turns out that it is exploding carrot. That he's got a firecracker, like he's just got powder stuff in there. It's just like the icing on the cake. Yeah, it just it just it just goes so rapidly from plot to plot that I I was kind of surprised at the end that the once after the fight the kids in the double costumes didn't show up again um, because later on they get this whole thing where they. They decide they have to. Richard decides they have to summon the devil. They have to sell their souls to the devil to get laid. And um, you know, they the, the, there's a knock on the door after they do the ritual. And um, I, I thought to myself, it's going to be those bloody kids in the devil costumes. <laughs> They're going to be the devil. And just this whole other thing with the what? What the hell was he trying to cook? Was Richard trying to cook? It was some sort of sprout, but he put like too much. Like he put like curry powder and like Mexican sprouts, but like curry powder and other stuff. And then he has like a hangover cure that includes like dish, like like dish washing soap and ant spray. <laughs> and it's just it's just so bizarre. But uh, basically, this 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 um these over overly spicy bean sprouts i guess whatever end up and as a kind of a result of this uh edmonton and mail have to spend the rest of the episode with kind of like bunsen burners in the backs of their costumes because every time you know they they they're they're, they're they will literally fart and like they will fart fire they will fart like blue fire methane fire and i'm just sitting here it's like i don't like fart jokes why am I laughing? Why is this so hilarious? And it's just, it's something that just basically crawls inside you and finds that five-year-old in you. Yeah. 
you know, the five-year-old that, that thinks the toilet is funny. And it really just kind of gets that, you know, but it, it's also got the, these other levels that it works on. Like this whole thing about them being, particularly Richard, being virgins and, you know, wanting to get, the, the, there was this one bit in the previous episode where they're, again, the episode entirely takes place at, at the top of a Ferris wheel. And um, Eddie and Richard are talking about these gir- these birds they want to, you know, get with and have sex with, and they're pointing them down, pointing them down on the 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 the, the ground, and uh, you know, Eddie Eddie is kind of like, okay, we want those two birds. Are you sure that one doesn't isn't the bloke? He's got a beard, and his name is Kevin. You know, it's it's just it, it's it's you know, it's the verbal humor, it's the situational humor, it's the social satire, um, it's the whole. It's the whole package, and it, it's really easy to kind of, in many ways, it's almost sort of like a live-action British, like, um, almost like South Park, in a way, where a lot of the humor is about how much can they get away with, but it also, and it is has a tendency to be very juvenile humor, but on the other hand, they are working at something of an intelligent level, if you know what to look for. There's something in the timing, especially with the physical humor, which has obviously been a key element of Bottom, such as you have scenes where they're obviously fired in fire and they keep setting the couch on fire. When Eddie just like, does he look so exasperated when uh, when Spud Gun, these two layabouts that they sort of pal around with, uh, you've got Spud Gun and Dave Hedgehog. Dave um, Hedgehog being played by, I want to point this out, Christopher Ryan, uh, Mike the Cool Person from The Young Ones. Um, also, also the. Um, He's also, for people who watch the new Doctor Who, he's also, he was also like the lead Suntaran for a while until uh, Strax became part of the regular thing, and that was Dan Starkey. But yeah, I never realized how short Chris Ryan was, but he's short. And because he always wore shades in The Young Ones, that's why I never seem to recognize him in anything. Uh-huh. The, the same as uh, Neil the Hippie is another one that I never seem to place. And I think it's because yeah. he constantly plays sort of smarter roles these days he, he, like Neil the hippie was like his dumb role and he just sort of plays smarter roles since then yeah it, um, it's one of those things that you have like a lot of these kind of actors that played stupid characters in that particular era of British comedy not just Nigel Planer but the two that always I always miss them when um when I see them in anything Tony Robinson who played Baldrick and Tim McInerney who played like the various darlings throughout the run of Blackadder. And, you know, I, Tim McInerney was on uh, Game of Thrones earlier this year. I didn't recognize him, but yeah. sorry for interrupting. It's so hard to obviously talk about Bottom without obviously wanting to refer back to the young ones because they are so similar in style. I feel Bottom's probably perhaps a little more anarchaic than the young ones. Uh, the young ones actually pause for breath occasionally, but... With Bottom, yeah. it's just like you're watching these two guys basically destroy each other every episode. I mean, by the end of the episode, we've got, what, Dave Hedgehog has been blown up by, ex- yeah. by flaming farts. Eddie has slid his wrist and hit a vein and spraying blood everywhere. I don't know. Even the amount of times I've seen that that gag where the couch is set on fire, and it's still funny to me. And uh-huh. the way that Aid Edmondson is just so exasperated by the fact that he put, he's finished putting out the couch and it's just ablaze again. Yeah, um, Spud Gun ends up setting it on fire again. Yeah, and the fact that they, they want to make a pentagram, but they've got no chalk or 
any materials. So they're there with the lady, the ladybird guide to witchcraft in a pentagram of pens. Yeah, they, 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 the I, I remember it's like we 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 don't have we need to make a pentagram, but we don't have any pens. Well, we've got pencils. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's just oh my god! And the fact that they have no uh, satanic robes, so they're all in bath, they're all in dressing gowns, <laughs> and none of them match. Just yeah. to add to the the ludicrousness of the scene, and they're there with this this home brew that that they've brewed for all of forty five minutes, yet it's reached consistency where it's melting the cups. So they... <laughs> it's like that's not beer; that's the stuff they use to get rid of Crazy Eight's corpse and breaking <laughs> pad for crying out loud. You know, I just I just love that. It's like, is it lager or bitter? It's like I don't know, but it's dissolving the cups. Yeah, and uh, the the fact that we've got Eddie and Richard, the the whole idea of trick or treating is to go around and beat people up so they can get money for the yeah. supposed shagathon. Um, and they, they, yeah, we hear them talking about beating this old woman up with a cricket bat, and the fact she's giving them apples uh, with razor blades in, and they they mark, Richie marks it down as being like a tradition of the holiday. Yeah, trying to place. Why why bottom is so great as it is? It's it's so hard to like place why it is that this series works so well and why it's still so funny. It shouldn't be this funny to watch fart jokes as an adult. I sh- I should have grown out of this, but to watch two guys beat each other up, engage in like a hyper violent version of Laurel and Hardy, just with foul language and added filth. There's just something that there's um. There's just uh, just so appealing about it, and I think when it comes to this sort of humor, I I think that A. Damonson and Emmerich Mel did it best. Obviously, A. Damonson opted to take a break from doing these shows and pursue his music instead. Um, and there's always rumors that they would do a four series, even though the BBC rejected it. That they were going to get back together and like either do a four season of Bottom or have these characters in like a retirement home playing just filthy old men. Yeah. Um, there always seemed to be this feeling that they were going to come back and do it together. But when they were together, they were even though they went off and did other things, um, like Rick Mel went off and did, I think it was like the New Statesman. Yeah. Um, and Aidan Edmondson did a, a number of sort of low-ranked comedy projects, but it was mainly sort of music he was focused on. But they were always at their best when they were together. Even if it's like with other people, with things like such as like Four Men in a Car, uh, which they were doing like with the comic strip, or if you were like uh, looking at things like the young ones, there, uh, there was just something about the the chem- the comedic chemistry between these two, which is just uh, they they just never seemed to fail. They were just always on point, and uh, I think this is a prime episode. If you only watch one episode of Bottom, I would say either this one or the one the episode which uh, came before it, uh, whether on the Ferris wheel, um, which I believe is called Hole, something um, like yeah. If only just for the scene where they tried to create a flare. Um, <laughs> which I'm not going to tell anymore because it's just... When you watch that, it just ruins what is already a great show. But just to watch them try and escape this Ferris wheel and to come up with a plan to create a flare, uh, which goes predictably horribly wrong. Um, yeah, it's a show which I still find funny and I think uh, I, I'm going to continue to return to it. It's, it's nice just... to revisit and know it's not lost anything. Just the bit where Adrian Edmonton takes his spare glass of beer out of his trench coat pocket. Oh, it's emergency pint. It's emergency pint. 
And I'm like, oh my god. You know, like, I, I don't know, just things taken out of pockets has always been, you know, back when I was a kid, the leisure, we had the Leisure Suit Larry games. There's this one scene in one of the Leisure Suit Larry games where Leisure Suit Larry takes, like, a uh, like a cardboard, wax cardboard cup of soda that is larger than he is and puts it in the pocket of his leisure suit. And I just, I, I could have just sat there all frigging night and watched that. It's just, there's a lot of things with within, within, um, bottom that just really hit kind of my buttons what i kind of look for in yeah. comedy it's very surreal it's uh, very it has its it has its own internal logic but it's very surreal it it's very fast paced it moves from 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 point to point very quickly uh edmonton and mail have very very strong chemistry with each other perfect timing with each other i remember having this discussion a long time ago um with a friend about the three stooges and the question was why have the three the three stooges is not even remotely the apex of sophisticated comedy from that era but why have the the three stooges why have their popularity endured and a lot of it is is because they had that chemistry going back to when they were a vaudeville act and a lot of it is the other thing is the the physical comedy the facial expressions. I mean, Mayo and, and Edmonton have these wonderful rubber faces, and I could literally just watch the two of them pull silly expressions for half an hour. Yeah. You know, I mean, as it stands, Eddie Hitler is a funny facial expression most of the time. You know, he's not even, I mean, I, I, I would never have connected him with Vivian from The Young Ones if I didn't know. Even though they share a lot of similarities. I mean, both are psychotic. They're both lead, charismatic leaders of their own little groups. Obviously, Vivian had his medical student followers. Yeah. Uh, Eddie has Spud Gun and Dave Hedgehog. Yeah. Um, and uh, as I said, both are both prone to these bursts of psychotic rage. And you notice that, you know, fundamentally, and there's not a whole lot of difference between... Rick, the character from The Young Ones, or whoever, I think it was Rick was the name of his character from The Young Ones, and Richard here, again, they are kind of people, they are people who have just horrifically, horrifically, they are like the most self-deluded people in the world. There is absolutely no match between the people they are and the people they believe themselves to be. Yeah. You know, they're not charismatic, they're not suave or sophisticated or any of these things and they just have these horrifically unjustified high opinions of himself i just always remember the rick mail the the running joke the people's poet back from the the young ones and how he believed he was so important and kind of the same thing here you know richard wants to think of himself as the leader and he probably is kind of the leader of, of this group he basically browbeats them into doing what he wants at any given time and it, it's just he's he believes himself to be you know a charismatic and a natural leader but he's a bully he's an unpleasant bully who he's not as smart as he thinks he is you know i just the the the, the another kind of running joke it's a subtle running joke throughout the two episodes i watch is his inability to pronounce anything that isn't basic english like he's trying to he's trying to pronounce double entendre and he's just mangling it. 
it, it, it's just they're classic and these are like the two kind of character types that they these two actors became known for you know i mean they identified with that so much they, 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 they like that they become kind of like iconic and i know that i'm going way up my own butt on this one you know i'm i'm but it, it's really i think that i mean that I think credit, I think that you can credit that with the longevity that I mean, th these are people who they were incredibly sophisticated. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm applying sophisticated, the word, the adjective sophisticated to an episode where people just basically fart blue methane fire. <laughs> okay. So I know I'm probably sound like I'm really, really just appeared at my own butt on this one, but it's like you had two people who knew how to play off of each other, how to play for an audience and kind of know how to put their strengths together. And they knew what their strengths were. You know, they, they were very, very good physical comedians. They were very good verbal comedians. They had great comic timing. I mean, and it, there is a lot of, you know, it is a lot of juvenile humor here, but not going to defend it. I'm just going to sit here and laugh my ass off at it because it's, this, this is one of the funniest things I've seen all year. I'm so glad. <laughs> you never know what way it's gonna go if you uh if you expose people to bottoming. I don't know if you've seen the whole season yet of the one you no, bought. No. Okay, because uh the last the last episode of the season where they're basically reenacting um they're trying to make money by creating recreating shows and things. So they do um a parody of nine and a half weeks uh called New Birds Go Upstairs to Eddie's Room. Oh god! Um, they do. Uh, they try to do uh, like a Kilroy Silk, which I guess would be like a Jeremy Carl style show, uh, okay. where they're asking the question: Should traffic wardens be armed? Uh, <laughs> and uh, they try to do a. Over here, we had um, a, like a, a humorous clip show presented by a guy called Jeremy Beadle, which would be like America's yeah. funniest videos. Um, and in here, it's Jeremy Beadle's viciously hilarious domestic hit violence incidents. Basically... <laughs> Well, basically, they're trying to do these, like, <laughs> these, uh, you've been framed style sketches. <laughs> so Eddie's, like, filming, is, like, cooking the stove, and he's like, oh, I just filled this flammable oil over myself. And then he gets a dart in the eye. I know I'm going to ruin the ending of this one. No, 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 but, um, no. You can't say any more because I'm looking forward to finishing this show. I'm, you this should... is amazing stuff. Um, I, mean, I, I didn't think I wouldn't like it, though. I was pretty stoked for it. Yeah. As you probably remember, my mind, oh, yeah, we're doing bottom, you know, last episode. <laughs> uh, I, mean, you, I mean, you've not even seen the Navy yet, played by Brian Glover. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I'm. For yeah. those obviously not familiar with Brian Glover, he plays the prison warden in uh, Alien Free. Alien Free. Yeah, um, I remember, uh, bald guy. He didn't. He also another guy that I primarily know from Doctor Who. Big bald guy, very broad Yorkshire accent. Yeah, he was also in a production of uh, Midnight Summer Stream, which we watched in school. So uh, I was really excited about that because uh, you know I'm getting to watch Brian Glover do Shakespeare. Yeah. Um. And I, I really like Brian Glover, so the fact that he turns up as as predictably their thuggish next-door neighbor um, in an episode where they're trying to remove the pirate gas line that they put into his flat. 
is the gas man showing up. You got you got plenty to enjoy that if you've only oh, just started. Yeah. And I'm kind oh, of yeah. jealous of the fact that that uh, you obviously get to enjoy this all for the first time. So we're going to take a quick break. When we return, though, we'll be looking at our second selection for the evening, which is uh, Kindred the Embraced. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. And we're back. Um, you're still listening, obviously, to TV Goes to Sleep Bad. In the first half, we looked at the anarchic comedy stylings of Bottom. We're now moving on to our second selection of this evening, which is Kindred the Embraced, and this was selected by Lucky. Lucky, I mean, what made you want to look at the first episode of Kindred the Embraced? Um, well, <clears throat> let's, um, I, I want to give a little bit of context here as to what about, about this. Um, one of the things you've probably figured out about, if not both of us, then at least me, if you've, if you've kind of listened to this sort of, kind of like watch this through line, the narrative of these 14 episodes of TV Good Sleep Bad, is that uh, I am a gigantic dork. And, <laughs> um, one of the things I was really into, um, I was never into like Dungeons and Dragons role-playing games when I was in high school, but I got introduced to role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games, not like computer role-playing games. Although I did play a lot of like Bard's Tale and Wizardry and stuff when I was 14, but that's an, another story, um, which I will tell you if they ever make a Bard's Tale TV show, which I hope they do. But anyway, so the game that was kind of like the gateway drug for me for tabletop role-playing games was a game called v uh, Vampire the Masquerade, which was basically... Uh, Anne Rice, the role-playing game. Instead of being horrific monsters, vampires were these sort of like romantic anti-heroes. The, the guy who created this game, Mark Reinhagen, uh, basically created this whole um, sort of like secret society of vampires. They, they, they grouped together in quote-unquote clans, so you would have like a clan of vampires that were basically like Lestat, and a clan that were like Nosferatu, and then like a clan that were like the vampires from the Lost Boys, and so forth. And this, um, at this point, TSR, which was the company that had put out Dungeons & Dragons, was basically being mismanaged by a bunch of bean counters, and they, for several years, um, until they were eventually bought by the people who put out... Magic the Gathering, um, basically they were kind of like the, you know, the kind of like the acid washed, acid washed denim of role-playing games. Everybody who was cool in the gaming um, scene played Vampire the Masquerade. Um, and Mark Reinhagen, the creator, managed to be, I think, one of two or three people uh, who ever got rich from creating a role-playing game. And it was all through licensing deals. And uh, the other thing that was really kind of big in uh, the mid-90s were that you were going through another kind of like one of these uh, cycles where vampires were big. This was at this point, 1996, um, I think this was also later on the year, this was the year Vampire, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I can't remember whether it was 96 or 97, but um, you had another show around this era called 
Forever Night, which I might do for this eventually, which was about, it was basically kind of Angel before there was Angel. It was about a vampire cop who wanted to get his humanity back. Um, and there was like a, an upsurgence in, in popularity of the Anne Rice novels and the interview with the vampire movie came out at this time. So in 1996, uh, Aaron Spelling production, Aaron Spelling's production company uh, and Fox got together. They licensed a TV show based on Vampire the Masquerade, and it was called Kindred the Embraced. And it ran for about eight episodes um, as a mid-season replacement in early 1996 before being canceled. Um, there was a rumor, and I don't, I don't know if it's ever been entirely substantiated, uh, but I have. There was a rumor going on at the time um, that uh, Sci-Fi, the Sci-Fi Network, wanted to pick it up, but um, the one of the lead actors, who we'll get into in a minute, uh, had unexpectedly died in a motorcycle accident, and they didn't feel they could do the show without him. So. Uh, to give you then a quick rundown of what's what and who's what Kindred the Embraced is, uh, it takes place in San Francisco, contemporary to the to the era. So this is San Francisco, the mid nineteen nineties, um, and uh, the show is about a uh, uh, a police detective named Frank Kohanic, who's played by uh, the original Soul Man himself, C. Thomas Howell, and. Um, he is investigating um, a San Francisco, basically a crime lord named Julian Luna, who's played by Mark Frankel. He's the guy that, that died in the motorcycle accident. And um, what he does not know at the beginning of the episode, but he learns by the end of the episode, is that Julian Luna is a vampire and is considered to be the prince, quote-unquote, of the five, quote-unquote, clans of vampires um, in San Francisco. I'm not going to get too much into what the clans are because if I recall correctly from the original show, they don't really, they're just basically kind of social groupings of vampires. Um, but basically um, this is sort of like, um, this is sort of like a supernatural soap opera version of the Godfather. Um, Julian Luna, he's a crime lord. He's got, but, and he's, um, got all these dealings with crime, but he's also kind of like an upper crust, um, kind of, uh, like high society figure. Um, his main, um, rival is, um, a fellow by the name of Eddie Fiore, who is played, um, by the always awesome Brian Thompson, um, who leads a clan called Bruja, who are kind of like your uh, Tommy Gunn-style uh, 1920s uh, Al Capone-type gangsters, to the point where they even use Tommy guns. Um, and uh, what sets this whole thing off is that Frank, the, the cop, is having an affair with someone that he knows is connected to Julian Luna, but he doesn't. what he doesn't know is she's a vampire, um, so what this episode kind of does is that it, it, it basically sets up the whole society of vampires, the secret society of vampires, on the one hand, while also kind of giving you, through the character of Frank, um, a kind of introduction, the kind of using that as the kind of introduction to the plot. So there really isn't a whole lot of plot development in this episode, uh, and it's the pilot. 
Um, you know, so you really don't expect that. It, the pilots are almost all about putting the chess pieces into the right places to 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 for for play. But it, it starts off a number of plots. Like vampires are supposed to keep um, vampires are supposed to keep themselves secret from humans. They call that the masquerade. Um, so uh, Alexandra, who is Frank's girlfriend, who has a connection to Julian and going to be a lot of explaining and re-explaining things she's breaking the laws of vampires just by you know being with frank and that's um you know that that's a taboo thing for her um there's all these sorts of kind of weird interdealings um with the various characters um I am going to kind of put the ex and kind of the exposition there and turn things over to you. So, okay. what what is what what are your feelings about this episode, which apparently well, has a title? Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I love the fact that this episode is called the Original Saga, uh, which is a weird thing to call a pilot episode. Um, like yourself, I played Vampire the Masquerade in college. I really, it was one of those few D and D style games that that I played. I mainly messed around with uh, that and I played the Palladium, but yeah, certainly the World's Darkness games, I believe it's now changed to something else, but um, I was familiar with Vampire the Masquerade, um, as that was one I played around with. I did a bit of Werewolf, um, the Apocalypse, and I did Hunter the Reckoning as well. And I love this world that they're set in. As you said, this is a world where vampires and monsters exist, but they hide themselves within society, as, and as we said already, it's referred to as being the masquerade. Um, going into this episode and knowing, especially with the vampire side of things, it was kind of a thrill to recognize all these things that I'd seen from the game. So when you have people identify themselves as being part of Bruja or Gangrel or Nostrafatu, uh, and seeing these different groups and families being represented as they were in the game, in the series, it was it was really quite exciting to see, um, and I love the fact that the the representatives of Gangrel, who are obviously like the vampires who can turn themselves into animals, the sort of more feral ones. So they tend to, when you play the game, they tend to be more like gangbangers. So it made sense that they're obviously a biker gang in this one, um, and that they're basically like the hired thugs for the uh, Bruja, who our main sort of head vampire is a member of the clan. And when he was first introduced, we see on his door, he's got the etching of a werewolf face. And it made me think, was he a werewolf? But it obviously he's not. Werewolves aren't in this episode. I don't know if they actually show up in the series at all, but it seemed like a weird etching to have on his door to have a, a connection to werewolves when he's very obviously a head vampire. So, but, um, I like I liked what the show set up. This idea of this cop being suddenly finding himself in the middle of this this situation where he not only discovers vampires exist, that his girlfriend is a vampire, um, and the fact that there's this war that's going on with the vampires essentially playing puppet master and pulling the strings of society to further their own causes. Um, it it uh, I think it can be certainly confusing if you're not familiar with the world uh, that this is set in. I could 
obviously see that. So having the knowledge of obviously playing the games a lot of it made a lot more sense than if I was coming in cold. But no, I I really enjoyed this. It was even if it did try and cram in a lot into one sort of forty five minute episode. Um, I'm not sure if it, it explains anymore as it went on because obviously there's only about six episodes in this series, so. It's uh, I don't what what sort of path did the series really take from here? I you know I don't remember. I remember watching the pilot in a couple episodes after that, and then I ended up dropping it, and I don't entirely remember why. Um, it was pretty clear at the time that um, again, you're talking the mid '90s, a network show. It it was pretty clear. That this was not going to be something that was going to stick around, um, and um, I think I, I think I bailed after the third episode, and I knew some people who kind of stayed on after that. Um, so I don't really know. I'm actually borrowing the box set from a friend of mine, the DVD box set. So I think I'm going to actually go through the episodes and and you know see where this went. Um, I, I think they licensed specifically only vampires, so I don't think they ever brought the other. Um, one of the things about the World of Darkness is that the entire idea was that um, you would have all these sort of monsters or kind of character types that would get their own game and they would all exist. They would have a standalone game, but they would all exist like in a larger world. So, you know, in the world of darkness, you could just play vampire or you could just play werewolf or you could kind of play them together kind of in this uh, world where, you know, vampires and werewolves are basically at war with each other. Yeah. Um, it is in many ways a, a product of its time. Um, in that, um, a lot of the stuff in there is very cheesy. I thought it had a very cheesy of its time score and kind of like these little editing tricks. There's this little thing at the end where, um, you know, uh, the, the main character, the, 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 the cop like opens this locket and there's this kind of like flashback to when his girlfriend, to his girlfriend and actually like kind of shows it like little thing in the middle of the picture. And it's very kind of like cheesy. Um, there are some not particularly good performances in here. Um, I, I felt um, I felt particularly the woman who played Alexandra, whose name I do not know and is not on the main IMDb page. But I, I felt she was kind of um, uh, kind of kind of uh, I don't know, kind of like a little bit. I, I really didn't buy her. A lot of things that I have, a lot of the criticisms I've read of the show really go towards the, the, the character of Frank, the cop, where a lot of people really did not like him, didn't think he was a particularly likable character. Or uh, I remember reading one review, actually, today, where basically said they would have liked the show a lot better if they just killed him off in the first episode <laughs> and focused on Julian, because really Julian, I felt, Julian, a lot of people feel, was like kind of like the natural center um, instead of being the antagonist, should have been the, the protagonist of the series. And as much as I wish Mark Frank Hell would have just stuck to a frigging accent, in the, because he keeps he keeps shifting. I guess he was from London, but he, he, he does try to do an American accent, but he never tries to do a consistent American accent. Sometimes he sounds like he's from the Midwest, yeah. and sometimes he sounds like he's from Boston, and sometimes he sounds like he's from London, and sometimes he sounds like he's from Australia. 
And I just really wish that they could have, you know, kept he could have kept on point with there. But there are some really good performances on this show. Um, you know, Brian Thompson, um, who I've been a fan of ever since uh, the X Files, where he played the bounty hunter, um, is kind of like um, you know he he does play a good kind of menacing tough guy. Um, the great. Um, Belgian character actor Patrick Bichot, um, as uh, who went on after this, he was in um, The Pretender. Um, after this, but Patrick Bichot, he played uh, on this show. He played Archon, um, who was Julian Luna's mentor. Uh, he put in very good performance with you know as little he is in here, um, and this having a cast that's good like this really, really helps alleviate the big problem with the script, which is. My God, there is so much exposition in this. They yeah. really, I honestly have to say, one of the bigger, there was a lot of complaints at the time amongst the vampire fan base that um, they didn't stick too well to, like, they didn't stick to the, they didn't stick to this thing in the, in the, in the, in the game or they didn't stick to that thing. They have five clans. There are actually 13 clans in the, in the, um, the game, why couldn't they put the other clans in there? And it's like revisiting this episode, there is so much as you know, Bob, type exposition in this episode where people constantly tell each other things that they should already know. Yeah. Like, and they're constantly announcing themselves as like, we Bruja will kill all you gangrels, <laughs> you know, as if somehow, and that, you know, these are things to like, you know, point out to the character to the audience this person eddie is a bruja um i can't remember the name jimmy ray or stevie ray is a gangrel even though in the episode you know damn well eddie knows he's about he, he's a bruja and that stevie ray is a gangrel and he doesn't need to point this out to him every chance he gets but you've got to kind of get this stuff in to the audience the audience kind of has to know what's going on because it does kind of use um it does kind of use them the, the these these types these clans like, like say the godfather uses the five families yeah um and um you know, so you have like a, there's just a lot of this really clunky dialogue. Oh, it's yeah, unquestionably so. And it's it bad enough with the families that we have without trying to cram all 13 in. Yeah. Um, it was confusing enough at times to try and figure out. And it was sort of thing, made me wonder if it went on, would more be explained. But no, in this first episode, they tried to, to give you the whole world in one right. go. Um, and it, you ended up with all these plot threads that, that you didn't really care about, um, such as Alexander's relationship with, like, the head vampire of the city, um, it, it, and that it was supposedly setting up this triangle between our main hero and her and, and, uh, and this vampire, and it just never comes to anything. There's a lot of... Uh, grandstanding and gesturing and, and that but it ultimately never comes to anything in anything particularly special um it's certainly a fascinating world and it captures the spirit of the books which i really like and it made me want to go off and see more episodes of the series after this one had ended but by god it, it, if you were going into this code it'd be confusing as hell right figure out who everyone is and what 
role they're playing, especially when you're throwing around the names of the fam- the vampire groups. Uh-huh. I mean, how is someone who has no experience in this supposed to know the difference between a gangrel and a bruja? Right. Um, the, the, these aren't like, these are all very specific terms of the White Wolf game. These aren't traditional sort of vampire fiction classifications. Right. Um, the, the thing is, is that in the games, they're basically, like I said, they're vampire types from the games. And in the games, they represent certain specific, like like I said earlier, where the Torreador are like your Lestat-type vampires, you know? They're kind of foppish. They're often artists. They're good-looking. They like to hang around with good-looking rich people who like paint and stuff like that. They're like your high society. Um, and so forth, and like your bruja are sort of like your motorcycle, like your rebellious types who just like just rebel against anything that looks like authority, you know. And you, your gangrel, your feral, animalistic type type vampires. And while I under, kind of understand why they kind of have to limit these sorts of things to like the story being told, you know, and I do think it is kind of clever to say, okay, we're going to shift the vam the, the bruja clan into like. 20 style gangsters and the gang realm into these sort of like biker gang. Yeah. You know, I thought that was on the one hand very clever, but it then takes that, uh, that it does uh, remove kind of a step of what these types, uh, what these, you know, names were actually used to describe. So all you really have is just a word gang which doesn't have any connection to anything, at least with Bruja, which is the Spanish word for witch, you can kind of figure out that if you know any Spanish. But it's like you have like these, they constantly throw around these terms like Ventru and Gangrel that you, you just really don't know. You know, the, the, a person who doesn't have any connection to the white wolf thing doesn't have that. That is a, that is a nonsense word with no context. Yeah. And all you know is that these people who with long hair that seem to ride motorcycles are gangrel and that they're at war with the quote unquote bruja for some reason, you know, and that this is something where I actually think they probably should have simplified it even more or at the very least not try to cram everything into a pilot episode that barely breaks an hour. I mean, it's, I think it's an hour and seven minutes, the episode I watched. Um, and that was on the DVD set. I don't even know that that, for all I know, that might've just been like extended edition with additional scenes, or I don't remember whether it was running a 45 minute or 90 minutes slot um, when it originally aired over here. So, but it is kind of, like I said, it, it has a lot of potential. I think there's a lot of potential for um, some really interesting kind of storytelling here. And it does seem to be a bit ahead of its time in that, that you, um, you do kind of have this idea of putting out a highly serialized series that, that basically uses these, these heavily supernatural elements um, that not even really kind of Buffy, you know, even Buffy, when Buffy came along, Buffy was very much, um, the structure of the Buffy season was very much along the side, the, the, the lines of, uh, you know, say an X-Files type show where you have your monster of the week type episodes and you gradually kind of build towards kind of like a myth arc and you resolve it in, you know, your season finale um, where, like I said, this is just a lot more heavily. It's, I call it a soap opera and that's not just because of Aaron Spelling's involvement. Um, 
you know, the, the best way to kind of describe this is someone once tried to call it, someone called it like a cross between The Godfather um, and, you know, Melrose Place, but with vampires. Um, and, and something like that really, you know, it, it, things that kind of like heavily serialized stories, you know, about supernatural creatures do eventually kind of catch on with, with things like True Blood. Um, I certainly, I don't think the how you had to do a show in 1996 was really compatible with how the show needed to be made, which was kind of like a gradual kind of insinuation into this complex world um, that had been created, not just to start throwing around all these meaningless terms uh, that you have no idea when you start throwing masquerade and conclave and all that. Yeah. Um, I really... Um, I really have to wonder, I actually have to actually talk to my friend Robin, who I borrowed these DVDs from. Robin is not a gamer, and she was not the person I expected in my fear group to have a copy of this. And I really kind of wonder what she, I, obviously she liked it because she bought the DVDs, but I obviously have to kind of wonder how, what she made of this. Um, because I could very much imagine, having rewatched this episode, that if I had never played a vampire role-playing game, Vampire the Masquerade, I would have no clue as to what's going on. You know, even the X-Files kind of is as complex as the X-Files mythology and world-building gone. There's really no, not all that much development of the mythology, even in the first season. And this one, like, as, as I both of us have said so far, just basically gives you a steaming pile of exposition and kind of expects you to sink or swim. I think the only final note I've got on this, and that's at the the big finale, where Alexander is who, who having exposed um, our lead character to the existence of the masquerade, is essentially sacrificed for her her sins, and she's hanging around the Golden Gate Bridge, and she does this flaming swan dive, um, which it just ends up. Why well, it looks really impressive when she's on top by the bridge, as soon as they cuts to her falling off, it's just a <laughs> clear, very clearly a dummy that's been set on fire. Um, and it kind of took something away from that whole scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I enjoyed what I saw for the most part. I mean, it was a little confusing because of all the information it's trying to give me at the same time. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd, I'd watch it again. I'd watch it again and see what happens next, even though, it's kind of sad to know that you only got another five episodes left of the series and uh, you got the sense that it's not going to be wrapped up as uh, wrapped up by the end of those episodes. Right. But again, it's the sort of thing like you, you kind of do adjust your, your, your expectations when you're dealing with the show from this era, Um, particularly with American shows where, you know, you just kind of, so much stuff gets so much stuff gets made and so much stuff gets kind of left by the wayside. And, um, you know, it's, it's it, particularly back then the idea of, of wrapping up the idea of really being able to wrap up a series in eight episodes was, it, that was just not the way you made television no. back then. And it's, I mean, for, Good and for ill, I think that I think we really kind of get a, a good. This is a good show to really kind of use as an example of this is why we don't do stuff like this anymore. 
for this kind of format of, of show. This is why they didn't make this kind of thing at the time. And this is why, you know, much, much later, you know, years later, do you have kind of like a different format for this? You know, so that's really all I've got to say about Kindred. Cool. Um, right. And that brings us, I guess, the end of uh, another show. Um, obviously, looking ahead to our next show, uh, Lucky, what's a, what have we really got planned for the next one? Oh, what have we got planned? We have something special planned. <laughs> um, so, uh, unless you live under a rock, um, you have probably heard by this point of a little show originally uh, debuted on Channel 4 in England and made the hop to Netflix, and it's called Black Mirror. And for our next episode, we're going to be doing two episodes of Black Mirror uh, to commemorate uh, the new season of Black Mirror, which has dropped on Netflix um, as we record this. I think that happened last week. So the episode I will be taking on is White Bear. And I will say nothing about this episode because all I'll say is that Michael Smiley's in it. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Um, I don't. No, I don't want to. If you if you've never seen this, if if you've never seen this episode, it is you are in for an experience with a capital E. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, if you haven't seen Black Mirror, definitely check it out. Especially the first two seasons. They're just absolutely fantastic. They're all standalone stories, so you can watch them in any order you want. And as you probably heard, I mean, at the start of this episode alone, we were we've been uh, raving about this show. So. This is going to be a fun one, and for my episode, we're going to be looking at the very first episode of Black Mirror, which is called The National Anthem, but more on that next episode. Yep. Um, but, as always, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Um, if you haven't done already, please uh, hit that subscribe button if you're listening to us on Podomatic or iTunes. Maybe leave us a rating or some nice words. It all helps. Um, you can, as always, find us on Facebook, uh, which is TV Good Sleep Bad. And you can we're on Twitter as well, which is at TV Good Sleep Bad. Uh, we are at the moment trying to do more with the Facebook page and Twitter feeds to try and put a little more on there than just our updates uh, of when the show's coming out and whatnot. So uh, definitely look in there and uh, see uh, all the sort of news updates and things we're trying to post on there and keep it a little more updated. But Lucky, uh, in the meantime, have you got anything happening on your side that you want to talk about? Oh, do I ever, yes. So I have come out of my hibernation as a film writer. Um, if, if, uh, for people who have been keeping track at home, uh, I took six months off. I was only supposed to take two months off writing from film, writing about film. I took six months off to deal with um, some personal uh, complications in my life. And that has, uh, I have um, got that resolved or I don't have that resolved, entirely resolved, but I, I think I have moved past the, the point where I, I have, you know, where all my emotional energy is being taken for some, from something else and I have nothing to spend on like watching and writing about film. So I have relaunched my, my website, which is now called Lackey Writes About Film uh, and can be found at lackeyonfilm.com and at lackeyonfilm on Twitter. Um, it just got new name, new design, but I'm still looking at, um, you know, the same types of movies I always was. Um, I did a full write-up of my experience at Fantastic Fest. 
Um, I watched a number of films at the recent Chicago Film Fest, uh, International Film Festival, including the directorial debut of Alice Lowe, um, the British comic writer and actress who is one of the response parties responsible for the uh, glory that is Sightseers. Um, and there's a couple of uh, movies um, that I've watched that I'm going to be writing up. I have uh, um, a review of a film referred to as the Iranian Baba Duk called uh, Under the Shadow. Okay. And the next the next film that I'll be writing up is Ty West's Western, um, starring Ethan Hawke, um, John Travolta, Thaisa Farmiga of American Horror Story, and Karen Gillan of Doctor Who and Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy, and that's called The Valley of Violence. So... Um, there is stuff going forward at my personal site, and uh, I hope you guys all come on down to lackeyonfilm.com and look at the other things that I uh, look at. What else occupies my time when I'm not digging up obscure shows to inflict on uh, Elwood here? Cool. <laughs> um, oh. Uh, that's for myself. It's still business as usual from the Depths of DVD Hell, uh, which always can be found at from the Depths of DVD Hell dot blogspot dot co dot uk. Um, if you can't, apparently can't get enough of my dulcet tones in this podcast, you can hear me rant about cult cinema on the MBDS showcase or Bad Bad Direct Strange showcase, um, and um, also talked about. Uh, Video games over on Game Warp, uh, as well as doing the retro reviews as always at uh, thatmomentin.com. And we've also got the Buffy recaps, which are happening at uh, this show's sponsor um, and associate and partner, uh, channelsuperhero.com. So, uh, yeah, as always, uh, trying to keep busy. But um, until next time, thank you, obviously, for listening. Thank you again to my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Lackey. Thank you. Um, and this is Elwood Jones, signing off another edition of TV Good Sleep Bad. Remind you, as always, to keep it strange. <laughs>